idols. They never satisfied. They never satisfied. might want to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to spend a lot of time there this morning. This particular chapter, the king of Babylon has a dream that is actually prophetic of things that are to come in his life. You know, most dreams don't have any kind of meaning behind them whatsoever. In fact, most of the time, my dreams, maybe your dreams would be in this category too. They just, they don't have much meaning at all. In fact, they're kind of weird. But they can seem real. I had a dream this last week that really got my attention and it got my wife's attention. Karen Paddock was in my dream. Uh, For you that don't know Karen, she's a, a member of our church. She's sitting right down here. She's a good friend of our family. And Karen, in my dream, was in trouble. Somebody was trying to hurt her. And being a good friend of hers, I went to try and help her out. Now, you you need to understand, I'm not a fighter. But in this dream, I was willing to go to battle to help my friend Karen. I ran up to her attacker... And I gave him a karate kick that was going to do him in. And I was awakened suddenly as my foot connected with my wife, who was in the bed sleeping peacefully next to me. And she made this groaning noise as my foot connected with her. And all of a sudden... You know, this was not a good moment for either of us. Uh, I went from being the deliverer in my dream to being the goat in my relationship with my wife. I just am glad I didn't end up in the doghouse that night. Uh, But in in our text, we're going to see Nebuchadnezzar having a dream that was very real. And this dream had some significance behind it. And and you see that sometimes in Scripture. God sometimes, particularly in in the Old Testament, and you see this in the New Testament too, those days with Joseph and and Mary. God communicated with people in their dreams. In this case, the God of heaven was trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. Now, before I get to the text, let me tell you a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar. He was the ruler of over the Babylonian Empire, which at this time was the world empire. They had conquered every other army, including Judah's army, and they were sitting on top of the world, you might say. Over in Jeremiah's book, chapter 39 and also chapter 52, we are told what Nebuchadnezzar did when he conquered Judah. They took the king of Judah, whose name was Zedekiah, and set before him all of his sons. Nebuchadnezzar then slaughtered his sons in front of him, 
along with all of his princes and officials. And then he gouged out the eyes of Zedekiah and threw him into prison until he died. I suppose he wanted Zedekiah to have in his mind that view of his sons being killed until the day that he died. And so Nebuchadnezzar was a ruthless tyrant. According to one source that I read, he took other rulers of Judah and literally roasted them to death over a fire. His cruelty and his power had no equal. That's the kind of man Nebuchadnezzar was. So what we are about to read in these opening verses of Daniel chapter 4 is quite shocking. Let me read verses 1 to 3 to you. You follow along with me if you have your Bibles open. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. To generation. Now, to me, that doesn't sound like the words of a ruthless tyrant. And it might seem strange to you that a pagan king would write a chapter in the Holy Bible. How's that happen? But something has happened to this pagan king. What we have here in Daniel chapter 4 is called reverse chronology. You've no doubt seen this in movies. You've read it in novels as they use reverse chronology. That is when the story begins with the end. And then it goes back and shows you what led to the end. That's what's going on here in chapter 4 of Daniel. We see this incredible change that has taken place in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He goes from the ultimate self-worshipper to worshiping the one true God. And in the verses that follow in chapter 4, he's going to fill us in on what has led up to this incredible change. Let me read to you verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. This verse indicates to us that Nebuchadnezzar was living the so-called good life. He's sitting back in his easy chair. He's flourishing, the text said. If you're reading from the NIV, it uses the word prospering. This guy has everything that he could ever want and need and even more. From a worldly standpoint. He's got the palace. He's got the throne. He's got people underneath him. They are serving him. They are catering to him. They are bowing down to him. The world is his. So he thinks. But his world is about to be rocked. Let me read verses 5 through 7. I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and on the visions in my mind, kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. 
So the meaning of this dream is hidden from these wise men. It was too complicated for them. Though they were wise in the world, by the world standards, they did not have the wisdom of God. So they couldn't interpret for, for Nebuchadnezzar what his dream meant. But Daniel could. Nebuchadnezzar related the dream to Daniel. And the dream was this. You can read this in these verses that follow. We're not going to read every verse in this chapter. There was a tree that was large and strong. And the tree grew up into heaven. And all the earth could see the tree. The tree was covered with leaves and there was much fruit on the tree. There were animals that were underneath the shade of this tree. There were birds that were roosting in its branches. And all of the creatures of the earth were feeding from the tree. Verse 13, as you read through this, it says, All of a sudden, an angelic being appeared in the dream and commanded for the tree to be cut down. And all the birds would be scattered. The animals would flee away. Let me read to you verses 15 and 16. This time from the New International Version. It says, But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. And so this dream is relayed from Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. And when Daniel hears the dream, the scripture says he is appalled. He is alarmed. The New International Version says that he is perplexed and then he was terrified. He knew what the dream meant. Because God had enlightened him as to the meaning of the dream. But he wondered if he should reveal the meaning of the dream to the king. Because he might fear for his own safety. You see, it was a bad interpretation For King Nebuchadnezzar, he was not going to like what Daniel had to say to him. But Daniel is a man of the truth. He is a man of integrity. He is a man of God. And so he steps up and he relays to King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. He says, if only, if only the dream applied to your enemies and to those who hate you. But that wasn't the case. It applied to Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says this to the king in verse 22. He says, O king, you are the tree. You have become so powerful and your majesty has reached into the heavens and your dominion to the ends of the earth. But you, O king, are to be cut down and it is you who will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field and you will eat grass like cattle and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Mankind, and that he bestows the kingdom to whomever he wishes. In the dream, everything comes crashing down for Nebuchadnezzar. 
God is going to give this king, who thinks he is a God, a reality check. He's going to make it clear to Nebuchadnezzar who is in control and who is really the true God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was all about himself. His motivation was to impress others. If you look back into chapter 3 of Daniel, you find the king building this huge statue, which is a memorial to himself. The statue stands 90 feet tall, and it's 9 feet wide. It was overlaid with gold. And when people saw the statue, which represented the king, they were to bow down in worship. And if they didn't bow down, they would be killed. And you may remember this is the backdrop of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three men who would not bow down to the king. The king was consumed with everyone acknowledging his power and bowing down to him. That's, that's the mindset. That's, the, that's, that's who Nebuchadnezzar was at this point. Completely consumed with himself. He thinks of himself as a God. And he wants everybody else to think of him in that way too. I mentioned to you earlier his life of ease and prosperity. One source I read said his palace was some 350 yards long. Totaling 630,000 square feet. Now that's a big house. How would you like to live in that size of house? You could get lost in that size house. It made me think back years ago when we, Cindy and I, first purchased our home. And we had, I think, around 1,300 square feet of living space. And we thought we had bought a mansion. But as the kids came along and as they grew, the house grew smaller. And so we added on a couple of times through the years to accommodate our family. And the house grew from its original size to to a little over 2,200 square feet. Now the kids are gone and it seems like the house is a whole lot bigger again. But I did some figuring. Our house, the size that it is now, could fit into Nebuchadnezzar's house 286 times. That's the size house this fellow lived in. And I'm thinking it's, it was undoubtedly a memorial to himself. It's a shrine to himself. Nebuchadnezzar was all about himself. He was his own God and he wanted everyone else in his empire to see him as God. But God has a way of bringing down such a person. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Nebuchadnezzar had puffed himself up like a hot air balloon, and God was about to stick a pin in him. And even at this moment, though, we see the grace of God extended to Nebuchadnezzar. He gave the king chance after chance to turn 
around. Daniel said to him in verse 27, he's already relayed the dream to him and the interpretation of that dream. He says, therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, what Daniel was saying to the king was this. Change your ways, king. Change your attitude while you still have time. Perhaps if you change, God will relent from what he has said he's going to do to you. And I find that absolutely amazing. God longs for our hearts to be turned towards him. And he gives us chance after chance after chance to do that. But if we don't take advantage of those chances, he is able to bring us down if he so chooses. Nebuchadnezzar chose not to listen to Daniel's advice. He was too proud. He was too much into himself. He was God in his own mind. So how could he be brought down? Who could bring him down? He's in control in his mind. The reality was, and still is today, God is the one who is in control. And if he wants to bring a king down or anyone else who is less than a king, he can do that because he is God. God can do anything he wants to do. He is the one on the throne. He is the one who has the world in the palm of his hand and you and I in the palm of his hand. He can do anything that he wants to do. Twelve months go by. And Nebuchadnezzar still has not changed his ways. And so God brings the hammer down. And when he brings the hammer down, it happens just that fast. Let me read to you verses 29 through 33. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built? Have you noticed his pride? He's looking out from his rooftop. He's looking across the city. And he's saying, This is all mine. This is all here because of me. Which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. What a reality check. Can you imagine being one of the people in the city of Babylon? And you're riding in your chariot alongside of the road that 
leads out of the city and you look to the side of your chariot and there in the field you see your king on all fours eating grass with the cows. That's, that's, that's my king. That's Nebuchadnezzar. He's eating grass with the cows. Seven years he's out there. That's, that's this period of seven times. It's referring to seven years that Nebuchadnezzar is out there in the field eating grass with the cows. His hair grows long enough that it's referred to like bird's feathers. His fingernails and his toenails have grown so long they're referred to like bird's claws. Every morning the dew drenches him. It was a complete humbling of a man who thought he was a God. And you say, did that really happen? Yes, it did happen. It really did happen. And the moral to the story is, you better not be worshiping the God of self. There is only one true God, and that is the God of heaven. His grace is amazing. His judgment is unbearable. The God of me cannot stand up to the God of heaven. You believe that? I wonder, do you ever struggle worshiping the God of me, the God of self? Some of you may have seen the testimony that Caleb, our youth minister, posted on YouTube. And he had it linked to our church's website. If you've not seen it, I really encourage you to go to it and look at it. He was very open and honest, saying that he struggled with the God of self. You know what? I struggle with it too. Through this series, I've been convicted that this is the God I struggle with. I about cracked up a couple of weeks ago. I was counseling with someone. And in that time of conversing back and forth, I felt the prompting of God to just be very honest with that person. And I confessed to that person that I had a similar problem as what he was having recently. And it was the context of a broken relationship. I said, you know, I've had a broken relationship too. And I've had to deal with that. I wish you could have seen the look on his face. It was like a look of shock. And and I could read it. And I, in fact, asked him if that's what it really meant. That he thought, he, he he was just shocked that the preacher had had that kind of a problem. And it made me wonder if he thought I didn't have any problems. Believe me, folks, I have problems just like you do. And one of those problems has been this wrestling match with the God of self. That's a battle that shows up in my marriage. It shows up in my family. I mean, it shows up every time I turn around and every place I turn, it shows up every day. This this wrestling match with the God of self. 
In my marriage, it can show up in a variety of ways. Am I going to serve Cindy the way I should? Or am I just concerned that she serves me? Am I going to listen to her the way that I should and how she deserves? Or am I concerned that she listens to me? Because, you know, I'm always right. And I always have something worth listening to. Am I going to be considerate of her or do I just want to make sure she's considerate of me? Because, you know, everything needs to revolve around me. That's the battle that's happening and ongoing in the marriage relationship. Maybe you can relate with that. This battle shows up in the family too. And I'll be honest with you, I'm just being vulnerable to you today. This isn't new for me just with this series. It's something I've wrestled with for years and I've had to try to make sure that I was honorable to God. Did I insist on my kids being good for their sake and for the glory of God or was I more concerned about how it was going to reflect on me as a parent and as a preacher? And I'm quite sure this is why so many preachers' kids go south in their faith and their walk with God. Undue pressure put up on them by their preacher dad who doesn't want to look bad in the eyes of the congregation. So one's parenting becomes more about self than for the good of the child. You be good so that I can look good to the congregation. I don't want you to embarrass me. I don't want you to shame me. Now, I guarantee you I have never said that kind of thing to my kids, but that's sometimes what I've wrestled with. And it sounds so fleshly and so ungodly, and it is. But it's a battle probably that every preacher deals with, and I've had to deal with it, and sometimes I've lost the battle. But you know what? I have a feeling that it's not just preachers that deal with that kind of thinking. Maybe, maybe others deal with that kind of thinking too. People who have a career. People who are in the public eye. People who want to look good. And so in their parenting, it becomes a wrestling match of, do I really want my kids to be good for goodness sake and for God's sake? Or do I want them to be good so that I'll look good? To the community. I'm thankful for God's grace. I'm thankful for His forgiveness to me in those times that I've lost that battle in thinking that way. And I'm thankful that my kids have turned out to be people of faith and they're serving Jesus and they love Jesus and sometimes. I wonder if it was more in spite of me than because of me. And I know they had a really, really good mom. And grandparents who prayed daily for them. And parents who prayed daily for them. And sometimes I got it right. Sometimes I got it right.
this statement, I've made it before, it, it means so much to me. God's grace is so much bigger than my disgrace. I'm so thankful for that. His grace is bigger than my disgrace. And his grace is seen in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, this king who was so cruel and so vile and so bloodthirsty and so godless. God took him who thought he was a God. He thought he was a God. And God, the true God, took him and humbled him and put him out in the field for seven years. But God had mercy on him. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar looked upward. Let me read to you verses 34 through 37. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. They ought to underline that phrase right there. I raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness. Greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true and his ways just. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Yes. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. In pride, we might save ourselves a lot of heartache and a lot of grief if we humbled ourselves before He humbles us. May we, with Nebuchadnezzar, raise our eyes towards heaven and make sure that He is Lord in our lives. Let me read to you from Kyle Eidelman's book right at the closing pages as he talks about this God of self. He says, Bruce Meads writes about a woman named Tammy Kramer who was the chief of an outpatient AIDS clinic in Los Angeles County. One day she was at work when a patient came in for his daily dose of medication. He sat in tired silence on the clinic stool waiting for the doctor. Eventually, the doctor who was new to the clinic came in and saw the patient for the first time. He administered the medication and then just before walking away, the doctor said to the patient, you know, don't you, that you are not long for this world. A year at most. Tammy Kramer said the patient came by her desk on the way out and she could see the pain in his face. He said through clenched teeth, that blankety blank took my hope away. 
Tammy Kramer said, I guess he did. Maybe it's time to find another hope. And he concludes this way, saying, The God of me, in all its forms, always leaves you disappointed and disillusioned. So here's the question we are left with. Is there another hope? And the answer is undoubtedly yes. There is another hope. His name is Jesus. Get self off of the throne and put Jesus on the throne. It's in Him that you and I will find everything that we are looking for and more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may our hope be in you and in your Son, Jesus. It can't be in ourself or anything else. If it is, it's in a wrong source. And so help us. I pray if there's people here today that are outside of Jesus, that they would realize He is their only hope. And if they are living for themselves in any way, they would decide today through the power of the Lamb whose blood was shed on Calvary's cross that they would dethrone self, die to self, and choose Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.